0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Great to have you here with me. I am very excited to introduce this week's guest, William J. Mann. He is a New York Times best selling author whose books focus on Hollywood and the American film industry. He is also a professor of film and culture at Central Connecticut State University. Some of his recent books include The Contender, The Story of Marlon Brando, Kate. The Woman Who Was Hepburn, and Hello Gorgeous, Becoming Barbara Streisand. And he is here today to talk about the book that won him an Edgar Allan Poe Award, Tinseltown, Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. So great to have you. Thank you for coming on.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here.
0: So what is it about old Hollywood that interests you so much?
1: Well, I've loved movies and I've always loved movies since I was um you know too too young to stay up late to watch them at the late show and I'd have to get up and get around my parents so I could watch some late movie at 11:30 at night um, back then in those days before um, even before VCRs. But so I've always loved the movies, I've loved the storytelling, I've loved the magic of Hollywood, but as I got older and I became a historian and, and began really researching um Different areas of American history. I became most interested in how the Hollywood illusions were sold. How did the dream factory operate? How did the impressions and images and wish fulfillments of Hollywood project themselves onto the country, and how did the country um, embrace them, absorb them? And so it's been that process, really, the business of of movie making. That's most interested me, whether that be from an actor's point of view, or from a director's point of view, or studio's point of view. And so I've I've really had a my 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 career has really been about looking behind the myths and behind the stories that we're so familiar with. I just finished a book on. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and it's a fascinating, fascinating story. It's not quite the the story that they sold to us, but that's okay. Um, it's it's just as interesting and just as fascinating. And so it's been it's been kind of uncovering those untold stories that has most interested me.
0: So your book, Tinseltown, mostly takes place in the early 1920s, which was such a fascinating time in Hollywood history. Would you talk about some of the transitions taking place in the film industry in that time period?
1: Well, that's one of the reasons that I jumped on this story for Tinseltown. Uh, As I said, what I've always been interested in is kind of the mechanics of movie making, the mechanics of myth-making. And really, in the period of time that I write about, roughly after the First World War up to about 1925, that's when the entire structure of classical Hollywood is established. So we get the, the rise of the studio systems, the vertical integration. Um, Adolf Zucker was buying up theaters as fast as he was making movies. Um, they, we see the introduction of the censorship bureau with, with, the, with the addition of Will Hayes to the motion picture directors and producers association. Uh, we see the marketing Machines of the studios begin during this time as well. So th- before this time, Hollywood, you know, up until the first f- first World War, Hollywood was uh, was the Wild West. Anybody with a camera could go out and make a uh, make some movies and get them shown in some theaters and um, find some distributor who would take it across the country for you. By nineteen 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 twenty, that's starting to change with the with the acquisition of theaters by some of the major producers. So the business was changing, it was growing, it was becoming more exclusive. Um, Not anybody could go out and make a movie and get it produced and and distributed anymore. And so it it was becoming more uh, corporate and more uh, competitive. And so that's the period of time that that I focus in on and that we come into the story of William Desmond Taylor on is the the industry is in this midst of a transition from that freewheeling, anybody who wants to can, can become a star period to um, this much more corporatized and profit driven enterprise.
0: Yeah. That whole idea of anyone who wants to can be a movie star. I mean uh, now of course people who appear on a screen or, behind the camera, for that matter, have had film and television in their lives forever. But in the 1910s and 20s, the industry was so new that people coming into it didn't usually know that much about it. They often kind of just stumbled into pictures. And a good example of that was William Desmond Taylor.
1: Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. This was, a, this was an unparalleled kind of fame no one expected that these novelties that Edison and the Lumiere brothers showed in the at the turn of the century were going to turn into this huge huge money making enterprise i think by the i may get the exact statistic wrong but by 1920 the movies i think were the fourth biggest industry in the country that's remarkable that it, you know that it happened in not even a decades time so there were fortunes being made by, by producers who largely had been penniless and immigrants. Um, it, it was, it was seemingly the cash cow that was never going to end. It was just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And people who had been working as chauffeurs or um, chambermaids or showgirls, they were becoming big, big movie stars <laughs> and uh, gods and goddesses in many ways. So it was really a, a, a very um, important and magical time.
0: Right, right. So William Desmond Taylor, uh, born in Ireland um, with a different name. Uh, can, can you walk us through his life um, up to the point where he gets to Hollywood?
1: Sure. You know, when he is in Hollywood, but when, when the book opens, he's the very august, eminent, very well-respected uh, president of the uh, Motion Picture Directors Association. He's the studio's go-to guy in terms of, uh, putting the best face on, on, on the industry. He was, he was very well respected, very well liked. Um, it, 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 he had taken some twists and turns to get to that point. He was, as you say, he was born in Ireland, County Carlo, um, to a, you know, a fairly well off family. Um, but he was the rebel son and he went to the United States and, uh, worked in the West for a while on a ranch and, and did various uh, other things. He's worked as an actor for a while, then he settles down for a bit in New York, gets married, has a daughter. And um, at one point, it was in the early 1900s, he decided he'd had enough. He didn't want to be a husband and a father. And he took off and joined a, um, a theatrical touring company. So when he gets to Hollywood, this, you know, this history of having abandoned your wife and child is something that he didn't want his peers to know. He didn't want the public to know. Um, he left them high and dry. And his wife did remarry and did remarried pretty well so they 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 made out okay but eventually the uh his his former wife spots him in a movie says to her daughter "That's your father up there and they contact him and he does reestablish connection with his daughter um, he goes to see her and some some peace is found but still it was kind of a, a you know, a wandering life for an awfully long time. And he, I think he finally found his place and his his happiness working in Hollywood. Um, but he had taken a lot of twists and turns to get there. Uh, at one point in Denver, he was arrested for something that wasn't really clear. You know, the, the records aren't clear why he was arrested. You know, he worked, he went up to the Yukon and Alaska, uh, you know, looking for gold. So it was a, it was a very um, wandering sort of life until he settled in Hollywood.
0: Is that when he changes his name from William Dean Tanner to William Desmond Taylor?
1: Yes. He becomes William Desmond Taylor in Hollywood, first um, as an actor and then as a director. Though I think when he first started acting, he was still Dean Tanner, but of course records were not kept very well from those days and the early movies weren't recycled and shown again. So his, if he had used that name in the beginning, it was quickly forgotten.
0: Yeah. Uh, now in, in Hollywood... Actors will take a few years, at least, right, to hone their craft before they consider directing. But uh, back then, you could move from actor to director in the snap of a finger. Experience wasn't necessarily required.
1: Yeah, we often see actors uh, directing, producing, writing the scripts. So it was, you know, in the early days, I think Taylor got out, got out to Hollywood before the war and... Um, it was very egalitarian. You know, one of the things that I saw in my research, it was before the war, there were at least a you know, hundred women in, in prominent positions as directors and screenwriters in Hollywood. Once the studio system comes down and, and uh, the business is run top down, we see the number of women in prominent positions you know, dwindle to just a handful. So in the beginning, it was much more egalitarian and Taylor did, did it all.
0: Yeah. So, what was Taylor's life like in 1922? What was he working on? Uh, What what kind of social life did he have?
1: He was by 1922. He is one of the top directors at Paramount. I mean, it's still called um, Famous Players Lasky at that point, but it's it will be Paramount in in a very short period of time. It was taken from the name of the distribution company. So, he's one of Adolf Zukor and Jesse Lasky's most trusted employees. His films made money. He had directed um, *Tom Sawyer* and *Huckleberry Finn*. Those were huge hits. He had helped make a star out of Mary Miles Minter, the very young and uh, very beautiful ingenue. He was a reliable director. He was he was articulate. You know, he had been educated well. He was able to speak to the press about the movies which were going through their own scandals at starting in 1920 so he was always out there the face of the industry defending the morals of the movies um he was he was a very private person he really didn't move in uh, the social circles that some of the big stars did he kept himself mostly he didn't didn't live in a in a very um gaudy movie star house he lived in a a bungalow apart which a basically a two family house he had some close friends, and he saw them regularly, but there were few. One of them was Mabel Normand, who was at the height of her fame as a comedian and director and producer at the time. But his, his his friends were very few, and he was known for not going out at night, except for those nights Mabel could drag him out to the Coconut Grove and get him to dance with her for a while.
0: And he also had servants, correct? Uh, a cook, a valet chauffeur.
1: Yes, he had um, he had a a, a valet who was also worked as his driver, and his name was Edward Sands. He was a a drifter that Taylor seems to have taken taken uh, pity on and, and hired. And he did have a um, he had other friends at one point. I don't want to get too much into Sands because he becomes a suspect. But he but he is he does he does um, wreck Taylor's car and steal from him and disappear. At which point. Taylor hires Henry Peavy um, to take his place, at least as, as valet. He doesn't, he didn't seem to be uh, working as his driver.
0: So there are basically three young actresses who all play a role in this real-life drama. Uh, Mabel Normand, as you've already mentioned, uh, Mary Miles Minter, and another woman named Margaret Gibson. Would you tell us a bit about each of them, how and why they came to Hollywood? and what their individual relationships were to Taylor.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Mabel Normans, I think she's, she's forgotten in many ways, and it's too bad because she was one of the very first women to produce her own movies, uh, to direct her movies, sometimes write her movies, and she was extremely, extremely popular, making all sorts of money. She was the female chaplain. She used to say, no chaplains, the, fee- the, the male Normand, um, but she had been through hell, really, since she'd been in Hollywood. She had begun using uh, drugs to try to keep up with the pace of of movie making. She'd been in a relationship with Max Sennett, the very famous producer-director, which turned out to be a disaster for her. He was basically a womanizer and, and didn't treat her very well. She then moved into a relationship with Samuel Goldwyn, which was even worse. He was abusive. So by 1920, Mabel's, Mabel's struggling with uh, addiction to various drugs and alcohol, and she befriends William Desmond Taylor. And Taylor, it would appear that he was gay, and so she felt a safety with him that she did it with some men, that they could sit and talk about uh, literature, and um, they could laugh and, and, and go out and have fun and go dancing. She didn't have to worry that he was going to you know, get drunk and make a move on her. And so they were very, very, very good friends. Um, Mary Miles Minter was was Taylor's leading lady in several films. She was very young; she was eighteen at the time they started making movies together. Very sheltered by her mother, Charlotte Shelby, and she developed a um, a fixation on Taylor. She fell in love with him, and he would he would spend time with her because he was very nurturing. One of my contentions is that he. He sort of adopted her because, of course, he had left his own daughter behind. And I know he felt guilt over that. And so he was, he was helping Mary, who didn't, who didn't have a father. Um, but Mary, of course, decided they were in love and they were going to get married. And he finally had to distance from her and say, you know, like he actually said, you are, you are May and I am December. And, uh, you know, we can't, have a, we can't make a relationship work. Um, finally, there was Margaret Gibson, who everybody called Gibby. And Taylor knew Gibby from way back. Uh, They had made some movies together when he was an actor. Um, It appears that she also was in Denver at the time Uh, he was there in a a touring company and during the time he was arrested. So they knew each other from a long time ago. And I I would have to think that Gibby knew things about Taylor that, that Mary certainly didn't know and that maybe even Mabel didn't know. And, you know, Gibby was a, uh, did not have the kind of star status that Mabel or or, or Mary did. She had started out, you know, making B-Westerns and um, was still making B-Pictures by 1920, 1921, 22, And she was making comedy shorts with Al Christie. And she resorted to some extracurricular activities to make money, like she uh, uh, worked in a, you know, it's hard to describe what it was, a brothel maybe, or a, a dance hall in which she was clearly selling her services to men, and she was arrested for that and acquitted. So, And then she later gets into a blackmail scheme with, with various uh, friends, kind of pulling bunko jobs on unsuspecting people, whereas Mabel was, uh, was troubled and, and, and working through her own addictions, she was also very, she had a great deal of integrity. You know, there, there was no sense that she would ever deliberately break the law or treat anyone unfairly, whereas Gibby was, seemed to be less troubled and was always happy and having a good time, but she was always out there breaking the law. So there were three very, very different women.
0: So in the weeks leading up to William Desmond Taylor's murder, people reported, right, that, that he seemed agitated, out of sorts. Right:
1: Yeah, he did, and part of it, you know in, in retrospect, it's pretty obvious it was because he was receiving these taunting letters from his uh, uh, former valet, Edward Sands, who, who had begin, begun to uh, pawn some of the goods he'd stolen from Taylor and was sending them back to him um, with with the pawn ticket. and so these letters were very disturbing. He would find cigarettes. Um on his front porch that had been smoked, and they were they were uh, Sands' particular brand. Actually, they were Taylor's particular brand, the ones that that Sands had stolen. so he he was agitated that Sands was out there and was harassing him for some reason. There were also telephone calls that were um he was receiving that no one be that would be there at the other end of the phone. And there were also reports after his murder. In the investigation, that appeared given the this large sums of money that he began taking out of his accounts, that he may have been being uh, blackmailed. So there were lots of reasons that he may have been anxious.
0: And then to add to the tension, uh, Mary Miles Minter is pretty much obsessed with him, and her mother is obsessed with keeping her away from him. Right? right.
1: Yeah, there were there were quite a there were a few uh, uh, showdowns on on the sets of, of their films where. Mrs. Shelby told Taylor that if he ever put his hands on, on Mary, she would kill him. And she said that in front of witnesses. And, you know, Shelby doesn't seem to have known the the fact that Taylor was likely gay. Um, she saw him as somebody who was trying to move in on her daughter and basically take away her cash cow <laughs> because Mary was making her a lot of money. Shelby was um, sh- she was a hard driving negotiator she had been she was one of the very few people who got a million dollars out of adolf zucker head of the studio for mary's new contract and um she wasn't well she was not well liked in hollywood and and she was known as kind of a a monster in in many ways i've often thought that was somewhat unfair because many men acted the same way and they weren't labeled monsters um but as a woman who was going head-to-head with adolf zucker people thought you know this is a woman doesn't know her place. Um, But at the same time, she also was was very um, insensitive to her daughter's needs and uh, very strict and was very resentful of the time she spent with Taylor.
0: We will be back in just a moment. And we are back from our break. Uh, His former valet, Sands, he was quite a character as well. Um, Originally from Ohio, You, you, you write that he walked around uh, speaking with a Cockney accent,
1: right? take fake English accent, yeah, Cockney accent. Uh, he had been dishonorably discharged from, I believe it was the Navy. He was involved in some petty crimes. Yeah, and then he, he uh, when he, um, except for the, for the fact that we know he was harassing Taylor in the last months of Taylor's life, we don't know where he ever went. He, he completely disappears from history.
0: But he, he had been snooping around Taylor's personal belongings, and oh, yeah. he had come across some incriminating evidence against Taylor, specifically the fact that Taylor had changed his name and he had tried to cover up aspects of his previous life.
1: He addresses him as, as um, Mr. Dean Tanner at one point. So it's, it's reasonable to think that he had gone through Taylor's papers and found out whatever secrets Taylor was keeping from the rest of the industry. So he would certainly be someone who could be uh, blackmailing him.
0: right, so the evening of, of February first nineteen twenty two can you walk us through the last few hours of his life
1: sure he was he and Mabel had had a quarrel uh, the day before, or something like that, and um, he had he to kind of make up with her, he loaned her a book, and she came over. That evening, and to bring the book back to him, and there was, you know, they were such good friends that you know you have these squabbles, you immediately patch them up. They both had a, a martini. Um, the martini glasses were still there in the room the next morning, and they, Mabel played the piano. They were they were just having a good time talking, and a little before seven o'clock, Mabel decided she was time to go home. And she Taylor said, I'll walk you out to your car. Um, she had a she had a chauffeur and the car was waiting out on the street. And Taylor's, uh, Taylor's apartment was in a courtyard. And so Taylor walked her through the courtyard out to the car, got her into the car and stood on the corner waving goodbye to her. And Mabel was looking out the back window, waving to him. And then he goes back into his apartment. And when we piece together the the timetable at this point—it's only a matter of minutes after that—that that his neighbor uh, Faith McLean hears what appears to be a shot. First, she thought maybe it was a, a backfire of a car, but she looks out her door and she sees what she described as a rough-looking man, about five-seven, standing about five-seven with a prominent nose, uh, leaving the apartment. She didn't think any more of it, and of course, the next morning. Henry Peavy, uh, his valet, on his arrival at work, he discovers Taylor's body on the floor.
0: And this man that that's seen by the neighbor, he doesn't fit the description of anyone who has worked for Taylor. His valets, for example, uh, Sands and, and Peavy.
1: That's right. It, Faith McLean would have known both of them, and she would have recognized them. She actually, they actually asked her at one point, Are "You sure that wasn't Edward Sands?" And she said, "No, you know, she goes, was it like, wasn't. I know, I know who he was. Because it was dark." You know, it was, it was about 7 o'clock, so the sun was pretty much set. It, it, after all, it's February, so it's probably completely set. PV is actually black, so this was a white man that she saw come out of the um, of the house. And she was absolutely certain that it was a man. Later on, lots of stories had come up that maybe it was a woman disguised as a man, but Faith stayed pretty true and kept saying, no, eh, this was a man. This was a man. And he was rough-looking, had a prominent nose, and he was about 5'6", 5'7", 5'8".
0: So it's PV, correct, who ultimately finds his employer dead on the floor.
1: PV knows what to do because he, uh, he doesn't call the police. He calls the studio because that's just the way it was ingrained in you. When you have a problem, you call the studio. And the studio comes out and um, representatives of the studio come out. And they, even before calling the police, they go through Taylor's apartment. And take anything that could possibly be embarrassing to the studio. You know, they take his checkbooks, they take his date books, they take his appointment books, they take his diaries, um, as much as they could find, and they they get it out of the out of the apartment even as the police are arriving. So uh, right away, you know, it's it's a crime scene that has been tampered with,
0: and, and love letters as well, right?
1: Oh, well, lots of the love letters too. Yep.
0: Yeah. So when the police arrive, what do they find? What's their mood? Uh, are, are they perturbed that, that there are people there? And do they thoroughly investigate the crime scene?
1: Well, the, the, uh, the studio um, physician declares that it's, it's a natural cause. He died of some kind of a heart attack or something like that. And without even really examining the body. And, and so the first police officers on the scene kind of accept that, that you know, everybody knows that the studios have power in this town and Adolf Zucker is, is more powerful than the mayor. And so they, they, they go along with it. It's not until the coroner arrives who says, no, hold on a second here. You know, we're not going to just say this is natural causes. We need to turn the body over. And so he does, he turns the body over and that's when the blood is discovered and and the the bullet hole in his side. And then he realizes it's a murder. And at that point, the the cops are ordering everybody out because there's reporters in there now, too. But it's too late. (laughs) The the scene has been compromised far more than it it should have been.
0: So a lot of the evidence is gone. Uh, As you've said, the crime scene has been compromised. Right. What do the police do? Knowing that the studio has interfered, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a tangled, complicated situation. Uh, trying to solve a murder in Hollywood with so many special interests attempting to to intervene uh, to control the narrative.
1: Right, and and you know the, the the police did the best they could. You know, people often say that the investigation was bungled and all of that, and, and yes, there were problems in the investigation, but. But they did the best they could at that point. They did determine that Taylor's very expensive watch and rings were still on his body, um, that his body was not disheveled in any way. The only thing that was missing was a roll of, uh, I think it was $10 bills, that came to $100 and was in his front pocket. Um, I think it was $100. But it was was a sizable amount of money. Um, And that was gone. So, but the theory was, well, if it was robbery, why didn't he then take, why didn't the robber then take the other expensive items that were all around the house and including on Taylor's body? Um, So, you know, they did do some observations that were well, but, you know, the, the, the thing that probably should be pointed out is that the reason the studios were so freaked out about this and so so determined to try to, you know, they didn't know if there was anything scandalous here, but just in case there were, they were going to take everything out. And the reason they were so uh, paranoid about this was because at that exact moment, uh, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was um, in his, I believe it his second trial. It may have been his third trial for manslaughter and, and rape and manslaughter. And this was doing a huge amount of damage to the, the film industry's reputation. They didn't want any more scandals. So they did their best to contain this one.
0: Right. There was an anti-Hollywood sentiment that was pretty much sweeping the country.
1: Absolutely. There were um, political and religious organizations, um, women's organizations that were literally trying to close the movie theaters the way they had closed the saloons under prohibition. Because they said they were all, they were just, movies were too far gone to be saved. And, or if you couldn't close the movie, movie theaters, they were arguing that the federal government should step in and regulate the motion picture industry. So in other words, give America a, a state cinema like the Soviet Union. You know, so this, was, this is what the studios were up against. I mean, they overreacted in many cases, but they had reason to be paranoid and, and, and fearful.
0: So one of the more touching scenes in your book was between Mabel Normand and Mary Miles Minter. You write that they weren't great friends, but I think that you, you, you say that Mabel took care of Mary as best as she could, tried to be nice to her, but there was always a, a bit of tension between them. And I think Mary felt it especially, right? Because she saw Mabel as kind of a rival for Taylor's affections. But But there is this moment when Mabel takes Mary into a bathroom to talk to her.
1: Yeah, Mabel always kind of saw Mary as kind of a pathetic little kid who just, you know, had this ridiculous crush. And Mary saw Mabel as, you know, having everything she wanted. You know, she had, she had uh, her beloved's years. They were always out on the town together. She was, she was jealous. And when Mabel learns of Taylor's death, she's at her, her apartment and she's devastated Mary then learns of his death and what she does is she gets in her little blue roadster and goes over to Mabel's house. I guess it was because she figured Mabel would know the the scoop and there were reporters there who were badgering Mabel and when Mary comes in screaming and crying what's happened Mabel realizes that Mary's putting herself in you know in harm's way here. She's either going to say something that sounds, sounds uh, implicating or just it's just somehow giving her negative publicity. So she drags her into the bathroom, closes the door, and turns on the water in the sink so that their conversations can't be heard by the reporters and the, and the detectives outside. And she basically says to her Mary, get a grip, go home, and don't say anything because this is going to be bad for all of us. And, you know, that is very much Mabel Norman. She was, she was um, for all her, her problems – um, she was very level-headed in many, in many cases and very sensible and also very compassionate.
0: And, and after his death, secrets about his identity, the family he left behind are revealed, which shocked them both. And Mabel, uh, especially close to Taylor, was just beyond surprised at, at, at what she heard
1: yeah it becomes the the, the revelation of the uh, the abandoned wife and daughter is is huge headlines for several days and um it was it, it flew ex- entirely in the face of the uh the reputation and the image that Taylor had projected as this kind of uh, very distinguished very reliable very dignified spokesperson for the industry so this this revelation of this past and then there were implications of his uh, perhaps doing drugs, or which I don't believe, but all sorts of stories begin to, to swirl about um, about his secret past.
0: Uh, so the LAPD, uh, one of the detectives that that handled the case was a guy named Eddie King. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about him and the direction he decided to take the investigation in?
1: Sure, Eddie King was was. Um he was the first motorcycle cop in Los Angeles, which I think is an interesting fact. Um, and he became a really good detective He for the LAPD. The district attorney's office eventually taps him to be the, their liaison from the LAPD to the DA's office. And he's very shrewd. He's very smart. He clearly knows what's going on. I believe that he, ultimately, I believe he was chasing after the wrong suspect. But that's only because when he... Very rightfully said. I need to interview everyone. The district attorney, William uh, Thomas Woolwine, said to him, "Fine, but lay off of Mary Miles' mentor and Charlotte Shelby." And Eddie, you know that Eddie's King's ears perked up. And you know why not talk to them? And he, he began. He came to believe that the DA was protecting them. And why would you protect them if they weren't guilty? Um, so eventually, that's where King's Investigation went because of the fact that he was being forbidden to to interview them. Um, I think there are lots of reasons why we can expect, speculate as to why Wilwine didn't want him to interview uh, Mary and Charlotte, but certainly that's what sent King in that direction.
0: So, so I'd like to ask you about the revolver, th- this mysterious thirty-eight mm. that police were certain was used to kill him, but they could not find it. And also, uh, Mary Miles Minter and her mom, Charlotte Shelby, they also had a, a 38.
1: That's right. Charlotte Chibley, Shelby had a gun that was very, very close to the, to the one that uh, detectives determined killed Taylor. And of course, with her very public declaration, threat that she would kill Taylor, and the fact that she had a gun that matched the murder weapon you know, made people look at her very suspiciously. So Eddie King was right to, uh, to inquire about that. It, it was determined that this 38, um, used, it was an older gun. Um, I'm not a gun expert, but I've had some people explain it to me that the, the ammunition used was an older vintage. It was an older gun. So the ammunition actually was able to, the bullet was in Taylor's body was there weren't a lot of of that sort of ammunition around it was it was probably 20 or 30 years old since since that sort of ammunition it was a soft soft nose bullet um that that was used so the question was who has a gun like that who would be using ammunition like that and lo and behold charlotte shelby had one
0: just like it right which she eventually disposes of
1: Right. Yeah, yeah. In a great scene, you know, it's, 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 a, you know, she, she, t- she hands the gun to her 75 year old mother says, get on a train, go back home. Cause they, they came from Louisiana. She goes, go back home to Louisiana, take this gun and toss it into the bayou. <laughs> and so her mother does. And again, that makes her look very, very guilty to try to go get rid of that gun.
0: And that's one of the things uh, so frustrating for Eddie King. He, he's like, if I could just find this gun, I could match it to the bullet and solve the crime. And he's just convinced that it, that it was Charlotte Shelby behind this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely
0: was. And there was another piece of intriguing evidence uh, also that, that landed in the hands of the police. They recovered William Desmond Taylor's jacket and they found some blonde hairs.
1: And, you know, he, he gets those blonde hairs through a surreptitious um, sending someone into the studios to to get Mary's hairbrush so he can confirm that these hairs that were found on his jacket are the same as as Mary's hair. They turn out to be very likely I don't think they ever proved it conclusively. They didn't have the DNA testing at that point, but they they seem to match. But then again it's you know we know Mary's told this to investigators that I, you know, I don't remember who was actually the the night of the killing. I believe it was the night before. So it was, it was 24 hours before he was killed that she did come to his house and um, basically making one more plea to love me, love me. And, and he embraces her and she puts her head on his shoulder. So, you know, Henry Peavy always said, you know, I always brush out Mr. Taylor's jackets, so there shouldn't be any hair on there. But in that short amount of time, you know, it's very reasonable to assume that Peavy didn't have time that particular day to brush out all of the hairs, um, and so I believe that's where those hair hairs came. I believe they were Mary's hair, but it was from the that embrace he had given her on. Um, I guess it would have been January thirty first.
0: So Peavy Wright was the guy in the house when Taylor was murdered. Was he ever considered a suspect?
1: He was briefly considered a suspect, mostly in the press, I, I, and I don't believe the, the LEPD ever saw him as a suspect because actually, in fact, um, he would have no reason to kill him because Taylor was scheduled that day to go testify on um, PV's behalf at um, court. At, in court, PV had been arrested on a vagrancy charge, and Taylor was going to go and speak to PV's character. So there would have been no reason for no motivation for PV to kill him. Um, PV thought it was Mabel, was convinced it was Mabel because, of course, he had seen them together the night before. He had actually mixed the cocktails for them that they drank. And when he left Taylor's house, Taylor was very much alive and in a good mood and happy and he was with Mabel. And he knew that he and Mabel had recently quarreled. So, P.V. was convinced, probably to his dying day, that Mabel had done it.
0: Yeah. Another theory, uh, right, is is that his murder might have had something to do with a drug ring,
1: yeah, because you know Taylor was Taylor was uh, working with the U.S. Attorney's Office in trying to root out the drug ring within the studios in the Hollywood studio systems. There was there was this um, drug gangsters, or you know they had they had a ring, they had a business that had infiltrated the studio systems. And in part of his attempts to help Mabel Normand, he began working with agents such as this to to root out these, these um, dealers and this, this um, network of drug dealers. And in some ways, one of the theories of, of Taylor's murder was that he was killed by the drug gangs because of the fact that he had disrupted their business in, in the studios. And oftentimes Mabel's statements where she's kind of grieving over, or, over Taylor, you hear almost a, um, a sense of guilt that she didn't herself kill him, but perhaps his involvement in drugs, in, in fighting drugs, which was, uh, which was done on her behalf, that perhaps has led to, her, to uh, his death. So, um, it's another theory, and it's, um, it's an
0: interesting one. We will return momentarily. And back again once more. Yeah, th- there's an interesting story in your book about how she had just come back from getting clean, and taylor came over to offer his support to her house and then here comes a knock on the door right?
1: right yeah the back door yeah yeah and he gets into altercation with the guy um who threatens him so um yeah so you know the suspects keep piling up here
0: yeah they, they really do so if you don't mind I'd, I'd like to go back to margaret gibson um sure she's involved with a couple of hoodlums named Don Osborne and Blackie Madsen. And, and they were all kind of part of this gang. Can you tell us more about what crimes they were committing and what her role was in all of that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the um, interesting things about Margaret Gibson's story is that she gets stuff done, even though she is, you know, she is willing to break whatever rule she has to. She wants to produce her own movies, and in fact, she does. She makes a movie and um, um, on her own, independent, and tries to get it out into theaters. She's working with Don Osborne on that. They had met on the set of another movie. Both of whom wanted Hollywood careers. He wanted to be a director. She wanted to be a star actress. And I, I have surmised, I mean, that they're. Their bunco schemes that they began pulling on various people around town was to raise money, essentially, so they could finance their their filmmaking dreams. And um, so Don Osborne was a real creepy sort of guy. He has an affair with his niece that that I chronicle in the book. Uh, he, and, and Blackie Madsen, whose real name was Ross Sheridan, you know, had a string of arrests going back to uh, the early 1900s. He was a Spanish American War veteran. And he was um, he was he was the muscle to Osborne's um, brains, if you if you will. And so they were doing all sorts of scams on various people, mostly men who would come, you know, traveling salesmen who'd come into Hollywood. And Don Osborne have his niece uh, Rose pose as you know a pretty young thing who goes up to the room with the guy, and then and then Don bursts in and says. This is my wife. I'm going to have you arrested. And you know, the guy says, "Hey, I'm married." You know, and he said, "Well, pay me off this money, and I'll let you go." And so, those are, those are the kind of scams that they they pulled. And around the time of Taylor's death, they were pulling another scam on a, a very wealthy man, uh, um, the son of the former governor of Ohio, a man by the name of John Bushnell. And he was a married man, and they did the same kind of thing with Rose, um, setting him up and then blackmailing him, uh, or, and, you know, or they would re- reveal to the public and to his wife about the affair. Um, Gibby was doing similar things, where she was um, going off with men and then showing up and having them take her to Mexico or across state lines. And then she'd come back and say, I'm going to have you arrested on the Mann Act, which forbade taking women across state lines to have sex with them. You know, so they were making money. They, they, were, they were making some considerable bank on, on these schemes that was helping them fund their, their filmmaking.
0: So not long after Taylor is murdered, a large chunk of money seems to fall into Margaret Gibson's lap. And where it comes from is, is unknown, but she wants to use it to start her own production company.
1: And in fact, not long after Taylor's death, she's actually hired by Paramount the first time that she's ever in an A picture at a big production studio and she uh, plays the supporting lead in a film with Mary Miles Minter just why she was hired then you know she'd never been in an A picture before had nothing to recommend her no no agent no contacts but suddenly she's cast in a Paramount picture so her her uh for a few moments there, it seemed like her career was finally on the way
0: up. And that opportunity she had to star in that picture—it's, it, of course, speculation, but it could have been the result of another blackmail scheme.
1: Yes, one of my one of my suppositions is that because we know Taylor was likely being blackmailed, and, and he may have been being blackmailed by a number of people, but Gibby had the knowledge of his past. She probably knew about the wife and the. The daughter; she certainly knew about the almost certainly knew about the arrest in Denver. You know, if if uh, you know Osborne and Madsen were looking for someone to blackmail to make some regular money, Gibby could have said, "Hey, I know a guy. You can you can blackmail, and you can." It's William Desmond Taylor. You know, and and it would appear that he he was paying money out to someone for a while. You know, and I think the story of Gibby is to put in context is that the reason I even began to investigate her was because um, in 1964, when she died, she um, called for a priest. And you know she said this in front of witnesses, one of whom I spoke with. And he, she said, I need to confess. She had become a devout Roman Catholic and she needed to confess before she died. She said, I killed William Desmond Taylor. And I don't believe she did. I believe that Faith McLean was correct in saying that it was a man who came out of the, of the room at five, six, all of, all of the female suspects, whether it be Mary or Gibby or Charlotte, they were all about five, two, which is very different from five, seven, five, eight. I don't believe that Gibby killed him, but I do believe that there's a, there's a possibility that she felt guilty, responsible for it. If indeed she had told Osborne and Madsen about uh, Taylor's secrets, they began blackmailing them And then on the night, uh, right after Mabel left Taylor's apartment, one of them, probably Madsen, uh, snuck into Taylor's apartment and shot him. Um, Madsen would fit the profile and the description of Faith McLean's man who comes out the front door. But of course, we can't prove any of these stories. Um, There's so many suspects. Um, I think we can disprove some of them. I think we can disprove Charlotte Shelby. But there's so many others, other possibilities as well.
0: So uh, the powder burns on Taylor's skin, they, of course, suggest that he was shot at very close range, right?
1: That's right. And he was also, he was also a very tall man. He was over six feet tall. And there was a chair that was uh, positioned kind of athwart his, his, his uh, foot. Um, that could not have been there had he just fallen. So the chair had to have been placed there after he had fallen dead. So my theory, and again, this is my theory. I'm open to sort, all sorts of theories, but that if Madsen, who was who, was, after all, was about five seven, um, that he if he had come in and surprised Taylor, and if Taylor had lifted the chair over his head to defend himself, and then Madsen fires. That would explain the very strange trajectory the bullet took through Taylor's body, which had come in low on his body, through um, through his rib cage, and traveled upward, and got be getting lodged in his neck. So it's a very strange trajectory. It'd have to be someone who is considerably shorter than than Taylor, but but very much shorter. People have said, well, maybe it was Mary Miles Minter because she was so so small, but he would have to even be smaller than that. So if Madsen or anyone is crouched on the floor when they shoot Taylor up. That would explain the trajectory of the bullet. And then afterwards, the, t- the chair falls down and Madsen or whoever lifts it up and writes it and grabs the money from Taylor's pocket and then beats the hell out of there because he knows that someone has heard the shot.
0: And it happened so soon after Mabel Norman left, right? Well, and one of the theories is that a killer was hiding in a bush and he kind of slipped into the house when the door was closing behind Taylor who had gone out to personally see Mabel off.
1: That's right. That's right. I mean, it, it, you know, there were also reports of two men peering in, in uh, Taylor's windows in the days before the murder. One was very tall and the other one was shorter. According to witnesses, Don Osborne was six feet two and uh, Blackie Madsen was five seven, so yeah. I mean, it, it's possible that that Madsen had gone there to collect the, the blackmail payment. Taylor refused. Maybe at this point was maybe Mabel had told him stop paying the money. You know, stand up to them, and uh, you know, and he and he refused or, or in some way um, resisted, and went to attack him. And and yes, and that Madsen had snuck in during that very brief period when Taylor walked Mabel to her car.
0: Yeah. So could you share with us what happens to Mabel and to Mary? You, you mentioned briefly Margaret Gibson's death. It was a heart attack on her kitchen floor, right?
1: Right. She, she fell into obscurity. Um, that brief uh, moment of fame in the Paramount picture in 1922 doesn't last, and she falls back into obscurity. She marries a couple of times and is living in a, a tiny little bungalow in los angeles when she suffers a heart attack and dies uh had very little belongings the the neighbors who who were there at his at her death you know report there was one small chest that she, there were some headshots and uh some other mementos of her career but other than that no one would have known she was had been a movie star or a, a wannabe movie star um mary uh, sadly her her career also takes a dive after the death because of course she's in the headlines and her her love letters to Taylor are splashed all over the newspapers and she she her career ends about a year or so later her addiction isn't isn't alcohol or drugs it's food and she be she becomes obese and 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 a recluse and uh but she lives into the nineteen eighties um but she she's very um lives in her own world after that. It's it's very sad. I, you know, Mabel also, people like to consider that Mabel's life also ended tragically. And I, I don't see it that way. Mabel, Mabel had lots of more problems in Hollywood. And finally, she just says, screw it, and takes off. And, you know, people see that as her being defeated. I see it as her saying, enough of all of this. And she moves to New York, she goes on the stage, and she lives a life, she's moving in a very literary crowd. And um, you know, working, you know, talking with actors and and authors and poets. I think she finally found herself in in New York, and then she she dies of tuberculosis at a at a very young age. She was only in her her thirties, and uh, she dies in
0: 1930. Wow! So Gibson and Osborne and Blackie Madsen are strong suspects in this case, but but is there another person or persons that that you have questions about that that you believe? or have believed, might have pulled the trigger that night.
1: Yeah, I, you know, until I discovered the the, um, the FBI reports on on um, Madsen and Osborne and, and Gibson and their gang, I was leaning towards Edward Sands. I, I felt, you know, even though Faith McLean said it wasn't him, you know, it was kind of dark, he was the right height, because he just dis- disappears so completely afterwards that if, you know, the reason for him to disappear so completely was because if he had killed him, then he would want to just vanish off the face of the earth, you know, get a new name and adopt a new identity. Um, he had somewhat of a motive because, you know, Taylor was threatening to arrest him, get him arrested. And um, the problem with that one, though, is why shoot him? And he also didn't apparently did not have a gun of that nature. The other thing that, that puts... Blackie Madsen at the center is that he did possess a gun, uh, a 38, that was very similar to Shelby's, if not the exact, and that his ammunition was um, Spanish-American war vintage. So it, his, his gun and, and the ammunition fits the police descriptions. But I would look at Edward Sands. I think he's a viable suspect. You know, other than that you know I've been talking to a couple of guys who are you know who have done a lot of research on this case and they believe it was a random killing and you know we can't discount that we want it to be this this um dramatic solution but in fact, there were some random robberies and and shootings in that neighborhood around the same time. maybe it was somebody broke in was trying to just rob him and Taylor put up a fight so you, you don't know you don't you you can never be certain of these things and that's part of the fun of these mysteries is that you uh, you never will really will know for sure.
0: So do you see his murder as a, as a pivotal moment in Hollywood history? Is it a wake-up call for, for people in the industry? Y-
1: yes, I do. I I, I think that coming on, on the heels of these earlier scandals, um, Arbuckle, uh, the death of Olive Thomas, and others, it really forced the studio system to understand that What they were selling was an image and a a set of illusions and that these images and illusions could be compromised and and made worthless if they didn't control the the reputation and the the image that the industry and the movies uh, gave the world. So within, you know, within days of Taylor's death, we see Will Hayes issuing guidelines about how the movies should be presented and what could be seen in movies, and what couldn't be, shouldn't be seen in movies. We don't get the production code for another 10 years, but, but, but indeed Hayes was there already setting up a, a public relations, you know, um, effort in many ways to, um, save the motion picture industry from the, from the threat of, of regulation or censorship. And, and it was really these, these scandals of, of 1921, 1922 that, that caused that to happen. Taylor's in many ways, though Arbuckles was perhaps the more well remembered, but Taylor's really was about what lengths the industry would go to, to ensure that their, their product was not sullied. And I mean, I believe that there was a cover up that the studio did know that Margaret Gibson was involved or perhaps they knew that someone else was, was involved i mean it's the only way to explain how gibby gets that movie uh, which makes no sense at all um and that they were willing to go you know essentially they let a killer go free you know because to reveal the killer would have been even worse for the movies and worse for the the public image of the movies so it's, it is a moment in which I think the studios realize their power and their obligation to protect that power.
0: Yeah. And one of the examples of that power comes into the story when Margaret Gibson puts everything she had into making this film and she completes it, but once it's done, she cannot get a movie theater to play it anywhere.
1: That's right. That's right. At this point, Adolf Zucor controlled most of the movie theaters in the country. Um, of course, this this monopoly was broken in 1948 when the Supreme Court ruled that it was a trust that the movie theaters, that the movie studios owning movie theaters was um, against antitrust regulations. But yeah, and the movie theaters that Zukor didn't own, uh, they were owned by Marcus Lowe <laughs> of, um, which, of what soon becomes MGM. And and you know there were still a handful of independent theaters, but if you wanted to become a big star, if you wanted to become a big producer, you had to go through the the um, the studios, and and the studios were closed to anyone who didn't have connections, and Gibby certainly did not have connections.
0: Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I I really appreciate you you chatting with me about this. So when this year can can we expect your bogey? Bacall book to come out. And what's it about?
1: Sure. Bogey and Bacall comes out in June um, next year. Uh, no, it's this year now, June 2023. And I'm excited about that. But I'm even more excited about my, my next book, which is looking at the, the scandals in Hollywood of the late 1940s, primarily the Black Dahlia case. I'm not looking to solve it, <laughs> but I am looking to understand it and understand what was going on in the city at that time um i really like writing about uh true crime and i'm thinking that's where i want to put my energies going forward because i I think it reveals so much about society and the culture and why crime happens and who it happens to um and how it's dealt with how it's how it's you know how it's sold in many ways and the black dahlia becomes a and still is a money-making uh enterprise. So um, I'm, I'm interested in exploring that in the full context of the uh, the late 1940s.
0: Absolutely. And I'd love to have you back for that book uh, whenever you're ready. Sure. And I do want to mention, too, that your website is com. Lots of stuff about you and your books there.
1: That's right. Williamjman.com. Yep.
0: Uh, thanks again for, for your time today.
1: No, Thank you very much. This has been a lot of fun.
0: Once again, I have been speaking to William J. Mann. His book is called Tinseltown. Murder, Morphine, and Madness at the Dawn of Hollywood. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis and have a safe tomorrow.